just around the corner there's a rainbow in the sky so let's have another cup of coffee let's have another piece of pie trouble's just a bubble and the clouds will soon roll by so let's have another cup of coffee and let's have another piece of pie let a smile be your umbrella for it's just an april shower even john d rockefeller is looking for the silver lining mr herbert hoover says that now's the time to buy so let's have another cup of coffee and let's have another piece of pie hundred thousand watts of power but it's up to you to put them to work this is the John Adams radio show bringing you truth justice and the American way of making money I'm John Adams Seated firmly in the free enterprise chair, speaking directly into the golden EMR microphone, this is Excellence in Money Radio. Coming to you live from an undisclosed location in a bunker somewhere in the southeastern United States, perhaps Southern Command headquarters on beautiful St. Simons Island, the crown jewel of Georgia's coastal empire. Thence broadcast 23,300 miles directly into outer space. This week affiliates, SATCOM 5. Thence rebroadcast all across the fruited plain to our vast EMR network. 331 stations plus the island of Guam. That's just the way it is. I am thrilled to have you with us for this special edition of the John Adams Radio Show. Let not your hearts be troubled. We will solve your real estate problems today. And I am delighted to have you with us. Welcome to the coffee break. We have the best show we have ever done this week. You need to buckle your seatbelt because we are going to have a true extravaganza um, of real estate information. That is, uh, I do recommend this. I would encourage you right now 
to go get a roll of duct tape and wrap it around your head numerous times so that your head won't explode. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm just trying to tell you, your head may explode as a result of this program. I mean, we've just got so much good stuff. Look at this. Um, John Schaub is with us. Milton Friedman. Well, actually, he won't make an appearance, but we'll discuss him. Um, let's see. Um, we have got a, a new topic we're going to be looking at dealing with city to country migration and why and whether or not that will continue. We're going to be talking with accountant and attorney John Heyer, who has some real interesting information about retirement vehicles that you can use to invest in something you know, which is real estate. I, I, I see the stock market. I don't understand it, and I'm not going to invest in it more than just dab. I mean, you know, money, throw away money. Okay. I see Bitcoin and I don't understand it. And I refuse to invest in that. I keep waiting for somebody to tell me why Bitcoin is a good deal. But anyway, we have got so much to accomplish um, this particular week. And so we better get the ball rolling right here. I do want to remind you, of course, that The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the opinion of station management, but they should, because this program makes more sense than anything else out there. And uh, that being said, uh, real quick special thank you to our sponsors, uh, Peter Burke, who is going to be joining us a little bit later. Um, you can talk, and by the way, I'm, I love his topic today. Millions of you guys, I know who you are. Look at me. I know who you are. You people, a bunch of you have not refinanced yet. What is wrong with people who won't refinance? Well, today I asked Peter to explain to me three reasons why people should not refinance. And we'll see what he has to say. Very interesting. Um, but I do appreciate that. Bill Preston out at American Comfort Heating, Cooling, and Air Quality. And, of course, we are sponsored by the 2021 Landlord Survival Guide for Georgia. You know, there's so many things that this program will do for you, um, things that will make you more money, that will save you money that will keep you out of federal prison. And maybe you don't care about federal prison, you know? Hey, three square meals a day and a soft place to sleep at night. How can you beat that? Um, so some people don't mind going to federal prison. I prefer not to. And this program keeps me out of prison. Um, but I, I can say this, if all this program did for you was help you avoid one turnover, what does a turnover cost you? $2,000, $3,000? I'll bet it's 3000 bucks. By the time all is said and done, I'll bet you have lost 
a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, and you're at 3000 bucks, as opposed to having the previous tenant just stay, um, which is a great Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs hit that we may have to play on this program uh, coming up. Somebody remind me of that. Um, so it's only $197 right now. The price will be going up. And if you would like to get a hold of yours, you should do so today by going to realestatecoffeebreak.com and clicking on webinar special or something like that. I don't know what it is. So you should be asking right now, who the heck is this John Adams guy? And why should, should you listen to him? Well, there are a number of answers, but primarily the most important reason is that I am an Eagle Scout, and that means I am trustworthy. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. But trustworthy is the number one there. And uh, we have had, you guys have been so important to me over the years. And um, I, you know, every week when we do this, I feel like I'm just sitting around with a couple hundred of my best friends. Um, and I did want to say a word about Rush Limbaugh. Um, I, and, and, you know, simply to say that here was a gentleman who single-handedly saved AM radio at a time that I was on AM radio and made a tremendous difference in the way per people perceived AM radio. Um, and you just, he was a giant in the broadcast industry, but more than that, I think he personified and understood the ideals of the Constitution of the United States, freedom, liberty, um, and the right to pursue happiness in our lives. And he was a strong capitalist. I think he is calling to us now saying, reinvigorate yourselves and understand what the framers meant and, and uh, keep that in mind. So anyway, uh, I, I just am sorry to see him go. I'm sorry for us. He's in a better place. And uh, that'll be the end of that. So thanks, Rush. Um, we have got so much to talk about today. Do you remember that I said Warren Buffett says, if you don't find a way to make money while you sleep, you will work until you die. Well, we don't want to do that. You shouldn't have the whole goal of investing in real estate is to first get to a point where your income, your monthly operating expenses are covered by ongoing profits or positive cash flow from your real estate. Okay. And then get to a point where you don't need any more. You're simultaneously building positive cash flow to cover your month to month needs. And at the same time, you are building equity. You are building long-term wealth. And that is a winning combination. I won't say it never can fail, um, but 
if you educate yourself and you do the right thing, you will succeed in this business. Because as we've learned from John Stuart Mill, landlords grow rich in their sleep. And this is our strategy here at Real Estate Coffee Break. We believe in a buy and hold strategy, and that doesn't mean your strategy is wrong. It just means that over the last 40 years, I've come to the conclusion that this strategy yields the highest returns. Okay? So uh, let's just take a look real quick. Number one, you buy a house. You buy it at below market value. That's not hard to do. We'll be talking more about that in future weeks. Step two, you're going to renovate that house. It may be as little as a paint job. It may be as big as a massive rehab. Trust me, I'd rather have the paint job. But whatever you do, we are going to add value to that property. It's called forced appreciation. Next, we're going to rent that home to establish cash flow or income. Real estate generates income. That income can be used to buy the property. Okay. Fourth, then I want you to call Peter Burke and refinance. Now, your home's gone up in value. I don't know if it's in one month or, well, he said there's some seasoning requirements. Peter, uh, I want you to remind me. Did you, what did you say for 90 days for seasoning? I don't remember. It changes all the time, but we'll find that out. But at some point, the home will have gone up in value because of things you did to it, because the neighborhood's getting better and because um, you are forcing appreciation as well as regular. And you bought a little below market value. So uh, you've got some equity. You call Peter Refinance and pull out some cash which is 100% tax-free, by the way. And then you use that to find another home to buy and repeat the process. How often should you do this? Well, I recommend once a year. You do this once a year for 10 years. I trust you. You have time diversification built in. You have you can have area diversification built in. You've got a lot of diversification. I like to say that I am heavily diversified into real estate. Okay. And by doing it one house a year, I have plenty of time to financially digest that particular property. And, and it's sort of like eating an elephant. How do you do it? one bite at a time, except a lot of this happens while you are asleep. And it's just that simple. Uh, it's not rocket science, boys and girls. This is something you can do if you set your mind to it. It doesn't require a PhD from Harvard. It doesn't require that you live on the left coast or the east coast. Um, you can do it from wherever you are, as long as you have an internet connection. I like to see my houses in person, but it's not necessary. And that's another major change in the way business is being done in the United States right now. A lot of people never see one another face to face. 
Um, and I, I'm guessing that's going to stay that way for a while. Uh, so number five is repeat, do it again and again and again. And after about 10 years, you're going to find you just don't need to work anymore. So, um, you know, I just wanted to cover that, talk a little about it. Um, this agenda is not correct, or is it? No, we talked about LastPass last week. I did everything to get ready for today except the agenda, so we're not going to look at the agenda. But John Schaub is back, and this week he's going to be talking about when is the right time to buy. All right. And he has some sage advice. This is only a few minutes, but I want you to watch it. And when we come back, we'll talk about it. Okay. And we are back with a very special guest here on the Real Estate Coffee Break. This morning, John Schaub is with me. John is the author of Building Wealth One House at a Time, which is a a required textbook as far as I'm concerned if you're thinking about getting into this business. Um, John has been an investor. He's a lender. He has owned lots of different kinds of real estate and decided that uh, residential single-family homes probably made the most sense for him and uh, is based out of Sarasota, Florida. How are things today in Sarasota, John? It's a lovely day in Sarasota. It's, it's, uh, you know, and we're, we're a fairly small town, and uh, so it's a great place to live. I live two minutes from my house, two minutes from my church, two minutes from where I go shopping, two minutes from the kids' schools. Everything's two minutes, so that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, to be well, and it's sort of like being here in Atlanta. I'm two yeah. hours from church, two hours from shopping. <laughs> Everything's two hours. So we we have a lot of traffic problems up here. You but do. I'm, you do. Uh, I, I don't know if there's anything can be done about it. John, you in your newsletter um, in January gave us eight specific areas that we should keep an eye on in 2021. Last time we were together, we talked about interest rates and we got some really good feedback on that. And I want to bring to the attention of our viewers and listeners, the second point, talking about the best time to buy. And of course, we've all heard the best time to buy was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Well, that's not helpful advice. What about buying today? When is the right time? Well, I think the best time to buy because of the interest rates is today for, for almost everybody. Uh, I'm looking. Uh, I'd be happy to buy even at a, a price that's close to retail because interest rates are low enough and the payments would be low enough where I'd have positive cash flow. So if you can take cash out of the bank and invest it in real estate and have better cash flow than you get in the bank, plus have the opportunity for appreciation down the road, you know, if it's the right, right property, uh, I, I think today's a great time to buy. But I encourage people to be very, very focused when they buy. And, uh, you know, if you, just don't, if you just call a realtor and say, I, I need to find a good deal, they're going to try to sell you everything they have listed. They don't care what, what you think is a good deal. So you need to be the one in charge here of what you buy and how you buy it. So when I teach, I teach people to be very specific about what they buy is, is, and start by uh, taking a map of uh, your town and drawing circles and uh, circle neighborhoods where you want to buy and, and for a reason, you know, maybe because the schools are good and it's close to work and, you know, there's common sense reasons. 
And then you get in that neighborhood and you walk around and you start looking for the right house. And that's a, that's a house that's the right size that'll attract a long-term tenant. And that's a different topic. But if I, if I, I won't buy a house that I wouldn't move into myself. If I wouldn't feel safe there, I won't, I won't buy the house. So if I can walk up and down that street, talk to neighbors and I feel really comfortable, that that's a neighborhood for me. Now we all, we all uh, are, are comfortable in different neighborhoods and that's fine, you know, but you have to do, to, to think about you're going to own this house for a long time and you're going to rent it to people who will fit in this neighborhood too. So they're going to look like everybody else in this neighborhood. And if you're not comfortable talking to folks in that neighborhood, it's not the right place for you to buy. So the, the right time to buy is when you find a house in the neighborhood where you want to buy and it's for sale and you make them an offer. And you won't know if it's a, a really good deal until you get some response to that offer. So making the offer is the next step and and uh, finding out whether or not this is the right house for you to buy and uh, of course before you make an offer you have to do certain things right you have to, to know what properties are worth you have to know what it'll rent for you have to know something about construction and design so, so there, there's a lot to this business <clears throat> and uh, the people to spend a little time learning before they go out and buy a bunch of property makes them make a lot more money than the people that just go out and buy something because it's for sale so to answer your question it's a good time to buy today but be focused. Buy something you want to own for a while uh, and, and not something you think you're going to sell for a profit one year. Buy something you're committed to keep for, for a long time. John, one of the things that has been frustrating to me is the number of people that uh, suffer from what I call the paralysis of analysis. And they are so focused on analyzing the property that by the time they have gotten to the point where they've convinced themselves it's a good deal, it's gone. Yes. Um, and guess what? For them, there's never the best time to buy because they never buy anything because they're so busy analyzing it. How do you get someone to the point where they're ready to pull the trigger? Is that confidence? Is it education? Is it low interest rates or a combination of all these? No, it's preparation. It's preparation. Knowing what you want, from this deal before you, before you find it. You know, if I want a house in a certain neighborhood and I want the ratio of improvements to land to be a certain amount, and I want the age to be a certain amount and the condition of the house to be this way, and I know all this going in, when I find that house, I know it's the house. I don't have to think about it anymore. I, I can move on to the next thought, which, okay, is financing. Will these people carry the financing for me? Can I borrow the money from somebody else at a low interest rate? Will it have cash flow? Can I afford the cash flow? Can I afford the down payment? And, and if you have all that, you know, if you thought through all of that before you find the house you want, once you see the house, you make the offer. When I pull up in front of a house that's for sale and I know it's the right house, I'm ready to make an offer right now. And I do. I bought a lot of houses by doing just that, you know. So it's a fairly short process. And I know what kind of offer I'm going to make. So, yeah, it, 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 you know, by being prepared knowing which house, knowing what kind of offer I'm going to make that's good for me. If they say no, I don't buy the house. If they say yes, I buy the house. It's so not that complicated. So I'm hearing that having a repeatable process here is one of the keys to knowing when the best time to buy is. Uh, and people need to avail themselves of the knowledge of how to implement that repeatable process and that's what your book is about right that's all that's what exactly what my book is about <laughs> so I, 
read the book. <laughs> Good. Well, I have, but I go back and read it again. Uh, you've got an event coming up on April 24th, John Schaub, and it's being hosted by you and our friend Peter Fortunato. Um, is Would this be an event that somebody would learn that, the, the steps necessary to to implement that repeatable process. Well, I would encourage people to read the book and, and that sounds self-serving, but I really would encourage you to read the book if you're new to this business before you before you listen to us on this class. But this class will, will lay out a plan for the coming year or two. That's what it's all about, is look, looking into how things are changing, how to react to the changes that, we're, that are likely to happen, how to make offers, how to manage tenants, how, how to do things in this changing environment that we live in today. So, it, but be, be somewhat prepared before you come. If you come to this class cold turkey and you've never bought a house and you know nothing about real estate, it won't be as meaningful to you as if you do some preparation. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I strongly recommend the book. As you know, my uh, beautiful wife, Marjorie, and I have uh, visited with you in Sarasota. We came to your weekend event um, many years ago, and it set me on a path that has served me well, and I thank you for it. The information about the April 24th event is on the screen right now, folks. I'm going to be there, and I look forward to seeing you there. John Schaub, thank you my for... Friend for uh, spending time with us today and, and being a friend of the Real Estate Coffee Break. I look forward to seeing you again real soon, okay? Thanks, John. Good. That's no good. I don't want to be muted. That must have been Facebook. Got in, they heard me say those things about Rush Limbaugh, and they canceled me. <laughs> well, you can't cancel me, Facebook, because I'm not on Facebook. Or if I am, I don't mean to be. Um, I'm going to ask Marjorie uh, to come in and share with us about the Paycheck Protection Program, unless she wants to do it from where she is and let me advance this. All right. Well, th this is a good time. I'm going to turn off my video and let her come in here and into the EMR studio and speak directly into the golden EMR microphone and sit in the free enterprise chair. Get out. <clears throat> okay, sorry about the sound issue, you guys. Um, whoops. <laughs> Maybe I can do this without glasses. Okay, we're just gonna talk about the Paycheck Protection Program again real quick. Um, I'm not going to go through all this. We looked at that last week. The key here is uh, that if you didn't get a payroll protection program loan uh, last year, or if you haven't gotten the first one, uh, you can uh, apply now. If you did get the first one and you have met all the requirements, then you can apply for a second one. But basically, you've got to have self-employment income or have employees to get the, this money. Um, and it is forgivable if you meet all the right requirements. Um, so net self-employment income, you are treated as your own employee if you're self-employed. Um, obviously you pay self-employment tax, which is social security uh, and Medicare. But um, this is a uh, owner compensation replacement. 
or payroll replacement. So the money is supposed to be used for you to pay you in draws or your employees. And you need to set the money aside. If you get it, you need to set the money aside separately and actually make draws against it or payments to yourself and to your employees over the appropriate period of time. You're going to have to pay attention to the rules. Um, you can apply until March 31st of this year. Uh, so that's coming up fairly quickly for the first draw. Um, and the rest of this we've talked about but use a separate. Oh, I've been told that you need to select 24 weeks uh, for the uh, payment period to pay it out uh, in order to get full uh, forgiveness, but I don't know the rules on that. But what I wanted to show you today is this is the, I just simply Googled uh, PPP loan. And here's what I got. Let's see here. Uh, this is what comes up. Um, so there's lots of offerings out there. Hold on. Um, here's some lender sites. The best thing to do is to start with your own bank's website. Don't call them. Don't go into your branch. The branch personnel aren't trained. They, they may know something about it, but they're not trained to do it. And the telephone assistance people are overwhelmed if, even if you get to a specialist. So here's some, if your bank doesn't have it, but start at your bank's website and I'll show you what Chase looked like because all the rules are there, all the, all the requirements, all the documents you're needed that are needed are there. Um, other sites that people have mentioned are um, PayPal does it, uh, Lendio, nav.com and cabbage.com. I haven't used any of these. I can't, I'm not vouching for them. Uh, but other people have said they're good. And there are many, many others. Um, this is Lindio. Um, so obviously you just start your PPP loan online. You're going to do the whole application online. Um, it, this claims it takes 15 minutes or less, but I got news for them. It takes longer than that to pull all the documentation together. Um, here's Cabbage. Uh, again, just they are letting you apply for either a second draw loan or a first draw loan. Um, if you're seeking a first time down here, apply now. So you see how simple it is. PayPal, same thing. Um, and if you have 500 or fewer employees, which probably most of us do, and haven't received a, a PPP loan, you can borrow up to two and a half times the average monthly payroll, but you have to, again, you have to have a payroll. So you have to be either self-employed with net self-employment income after expenses showing on your tax return or um, actual employees that you're paying. Um, you can get a second draw loan if you've already finished the first one uh, correctly. Uh, and you can get the same amount two and a half times uh, your average monthly uh, net income or uh, payroll, um, unless you're a uh, food service, three and a half times rather. Um, here's Chase. They've got whole, all kinds of instructions. Um, I went to Chase because that's where my business accounts are. Um, and that's it. So let me see if I can get John back. John? We're ready for John, but he's not here. He's coming. Hold on just a minute. 
<laughs> Judge Learned Hand um, in a tax, I think it was a tax court case a long time ago, um, said that no one is obligated to pay more taxes than the law demands. And he said to do so, uh, what was it? It's mere can't, that it's not something you're doing for to be a good person to pay more taxes, but it's your obligation to take advantage of the tax laws as they exist um, to your benefit. And honestly, the tax laws for a large part are the way they are to encourage you to do things like invest in real estate. So you're not doing something bad by taking legitimate deductions or investing in real estate. Here's John. Bye. The dog is having a fit. You may be wondering who that is outside the window barking. That is Tito. And Tito has lost his mind. I don't know why. He's, this is what happens when dogs are allowed in the vicinity of the show. Got to get my glasses here. All right. Very interesting stuff so far. Um, it is time. Margie, are you here? I am. Good. Can you help Peter come join us? Yes. Uh, Peter Burke joins us now. And I need to get over here. And we're going to share screen. And then once we're here, we're going to go to 56. And there's Peter Burke. And I want, but while Peter's joining us, I want to remind everybody um, of the real number that, that you should remember, which is O-S-U-J-L-R-W-S-K-Y. Um, just dial that on your cell phone. And that's such an easy to remember number. It will actually automatically dial 678 557 97.59. And while we get Peter ready, I'm going to uh, go to uh, reminding everybody some of the key characteristics of real estate. Real estate generates income. You need to know this. You need to know this cold. There are five key uh, features or benefits of real estate as an investment. Would you turn down the volume in there, please? Thank you. Uh, income. We already talked about this. Real estate generates income, and that income can be used to pay for the property. In other words, your tenant is going to buy your investment for you over a period of time. Uh, number two, depreciation and other tax benefits. And there's so many tax benefits, and we're going to talk about that in detail in the second hour when we have attorney and accountant John Heyer join us to talk about retirement vehicles because this is a very powerful way that you can leverage your real estate investments. But depreciation is one of the tax benefits that we get. Uh, the current administration may be chipping away, but it's still a uh, a very tax favored investment, especially for 
uh, people who are buying the house to live there. So number three, equity build up over time. What that means is that um, real estate, typically we put a 15 or a 20 or a 30 year mortgage on it. I have said at these rates, if I could get a hundred year loan, I'd, I'd take it. Um, but the concept of equity buildup is that you are going to pay down the um, principal balance of the loan over a period of time. And that does not occur in a straight line. That occurs in sort of a, a line. So up front, you're paying mostly interest, which is tax deductible. Uh, in the very end, you're paying mostly principal which is of course not tax deductible, but it's paying off uh, what you owe. And by then, hopefully the house will have gone up in value and you'll owe less and less and less until eventually you owe nothing on the house. And at the same time, we hope that appreciation is happening. Now, we know that there can be periods during which real estate values decline. We saw that in 2008 and 2009 and 2010 in the Atlanta market and nationwide. I don't believe that had hardly anything to do with actually the real estate itself. I think it was a result of bad government policy of pushing people into houses and providing money to people that had never uh, owned a house, didn't know what their responsibilities would be, and then giving them adjustable rate mortgages. And hopefully that will not happen again. It's certainly not the situation we are in now. But not only do we get economic appreciation, in other words, windows cost more today than they did 50 years ago. Um, uh, land costs more than it did 50 years ago. Roofing costs more lumber costs, all of these things, labor costs more than it did. Um, that's economic appreciation. It's a tendency of prices to rise over time. But in addition to that, we have forced appreciation. And that forced appreciation is things that we do to add value to the property. And that can be as little as painting it or as much as a total renovation. And finally, um, the fifth characteristic of a real estate investment is that it allows us to utilize leverage a small amount of money to control a very large investment. It allows us to use leverage safely. Now, you can't do that with stocks and bonds. You can't do that with gold. You certainly can't do that with Bitcoin. I don't even understand Bitcoin, and I know you can't do leverage safely. But with real estate, you can. Have you ever wondered why the bank is willing to loan you money for 30 years to acquire residential real estate? It's because the bank is convinced that um, the property will be worth more in 30 years than it is today. And I am too. So um, leverage is a real key. Leverage is what allows ordinary people to become wealthy.
And those are the five characteristics, income, depreciation, equity, appreciation, and leverage. And that's what makes real estate ideal. So I'm wondering, I'm going to stop sharing right here. Actually, I'm going to go to Peter's first slide. If we got Peter. Yeah, he's there. All right. And I'm going to stop sharing and say hello to Peter. If I can find him, I can't stop. I'm sharing. right here, John. Can you hear me? Good I hear morning. you fine, but I'm tr there you are. Good morning. How, how are you, my friend? Um, I, have, I have no complaints. If I had a tail, I'd be wagging it. Well, I appreciate that. I understand you are visiting family in Texas and got stuck right there right. in the middle of the snowstorm. Yes. And I, lost I, power. I learned a lot these last few days. <laughs> I bet you did. But if you text me, I will share with you things that I learned about Texas and electricity and water. I, I think we better nip that in the bud. This is a family program, and I don't want to get into... I mean, if Facebook found out, they would cancel both of us. So absolutely, we can't have that happen. Peter, I'm going to go right to the slides and we're going to talk today about a topic that I don't understand. Why have millions of Americans not refinanced? And it's not just a few. Somebody did a study, Peter, and said there were like, uh, like 6 million people who were qualified and would save substantial money, but they have not gotten around to refinancing. Why is that? Well, they may be smarter than some people. There are, there are some great reasons not to refinance. Well, let's talk about them and I've got your slide up. So what's, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense? Well, I took what I think are the top three and there's probably another uh, dozen more plus, but you've got to weigh the cost of the refinance. And um, when I say the cost, um, there are closing costs. Our favorite governor likes his fair share. The title insurance industry likes their fair share, the appraisal industry. And you don't necessarily see those costs because they're added to your loan balance. If you owed 125 and your closing costs are 2,500, your new loan would be for 127.5. And that comes from your equity that you've worked hard to accumulate. Right. And well, it, is there a way to include the cost in the rate? Yes and no. Uh, lenders are smart and they've realized that that's a zero sum game. And um, it used to be quite common, but with serial refinancing, lenders can't make a reasonable return if your loan doesn't stay on their books for very long. And if you refinance today and roll your closing costs into the rate, the lender is betting that you're going to keep that loan for a number of years. But if you do that again in another year, 
they've paid for your refinance and haven't earned a return. So they're beginning to get wise to that. So the old no cost refinance is somewhat going the way of uh, the buggy whip. How about that? Well, I, I learned something today as I always do when I listen to the real estate coffee break. All right, so what else would discourage someone from refinancing? Well, uh, if you have a 30-year mortgage and you've uh, uh, had it for four or five years, you've got 25 years left. And um, if you refinance into another 30-year mortgage, you've now got 30 more years to pay off your loan. And for those that have a uh, objective of being mortgage-free, um, while you may see a savings in your monthly payment, you've extended the term of your financing. And I know you always talk about the 100-year loan, um, but you've got to weigh the difference of, um, of um, does it make sense to continue on? You've got to do some uh, simple analysis with a piece of paper and a pencil and a calculator and determine what the true benefit is. But well, I understand that, but doesn't that represent a fundamental misunderstanding of the loan amortization process, which you can alter by deciding how much principal you wish to send? The suggested amount will cause it, you're right, uh, if it's a 30-year loan, the suggested payment amount, the minimum, will in fact cause it to amortize over 30 years. But going from a 30 to a 25, and some lenders even offer 25-year, or they offer anything between 10 and 30. You just pick whatever you want. But you, my you point is, couldn't I take a 30-year loan uh, run it through my online calculator and figure out that by adding $10 a month to the payments, I've now converted that 30 into a 25 and didn't have to ask anybody's permission. Correct. As long as you've got the discipline to, to make a bigger payment than required, absolutely. And if you've got the discipline, do it. Peter, I have several hundred people right now viewing and listening to this program and you've just insulted them. These are disciplined, dedicated, determined Americans. And whatever we set our mind to, we do. So I think you owe somebody an apology and we'll talk about that later. All right, we got a couple of questions for Peter. All right, hold everything. I'm I'm going to click on my Q and A here, and then I'm going to scroll down. All right, here we go, Peter. Our good friend Lee says, ask Peter about refinancing a group of properties all at one time. Hello, Lee. I have at least five that need this done. Very good question. Uh, and Lee is not alone. We have other people <coughs> that own you know, a handful of properties, Peter, and, or, or maybe they own 10 or 15. Do lenders ever offer a, a blanket mortgage or, or is that a banking function more than a mortgage function? 
You know, the great thing about a conventional loan is it offers long-term 30-year fixed rate mortgages at great low rates. When you digress from that, you're going to find that it's short-term financing at a higher rate and higher fees, and it may, and it may not suit you. But you can do multiple individual loans at the same time, three, four, five, um, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to as long as you collectively qualify at the same time. And that's that's common, but a, a blanket loan, uh, it's a local bank thing and it's gonna yeah. be a five-year balloon probably. Well, which is not, I mean, the whole purpose I think right now of refinancing is to lock in these low rates for as long as we can. So if Lee were to contact you, you could help him analyze this situation. Correct. Lee, thanks for the question. Brenda is asking, does it make sense if you have a lot of equity to do a refi cash out to use that money tax-free since the interest rate is so low? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, that to me is probably the most powerful reason. Once you put a 30-year loan on a property at what are we talking about for non-owner occupant today? 60% or 70% loan? Three and a half, three and a half percent, 3.625. What, what a bonanza. And, and I just, you know, there's so many things you can invest in that will give you a much better return than that, including residential real estate. So yeah, Brenda, good, good question. Thank you. Um, and my debt to income is 60%. Can I refinance? Uh, yeah, if by refinancing, it brings down your debt to income and it improves your situation, then there's no reason the lender would say no. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip the last one there, honey, because it's a little, little involved. Okay. So let's get right back over here to the top three reasons to not refinance, please. Uh, number three. This is a great one. And I am the person that uh, lives it every day. I have an adjustable rate mortgage. I got a seven-year arm six years ago. And um, I believe my rate will actually decline by itself uh, when it comes up for renewal. Because if you look at the typical indexes or the benchmark rate, they've declined substantially over the last 12 months. And I believe my loan will, uh, my interest rate will decline. So, um, you know, the fear of it's gonna jump up 3% at the renewal, uh, that may not necessarily be the case today. I think you just have to do some homework and learn what kind of adjustable rate mortgage you have. And you and I have talked before about inflation, but. I think, and I may be way off base, but I think inflation is sort of an opiate of the masses. We, it, it uh, everybody gets a little bit more pay every year and then everything just costs a little bit more and the government gets more and more money and prints more and more money and everybody's happy and nobody is hurt theoretically. Um, even, uh, you know, retirees now are on these, um, 
um, defined contribution plans and, uh, and, and social security is indexed, Medicare, Medicare, everything's indexed. Um, do you think, I mean, you've got five years to go. What would lead you to believe that your rate would not increase the maximum five years from now? Well, it's going to adjust in a year, but oh. I don't know about five years, but I believe over the, it, it, once it adjusts, it then adjusts once every year. And um, I believe for the foreseeable future that um, um, it, it will decline. And so you're um, talking about the, the 18 to 24 month horizon that, that um, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen has talked about and, and has been confirmed by whoever's over at the Fed these days. Who is yeah. at the Fed? I don't even know. I think it is Janet Yellen, isn't it? Or is she Treasury Secretary? I, I don't know. I, I'm so Im I'm so confused, Peter. I don't But I, I, I do want to say one thing that I didn't put on there that I get this question all the time, and that's a 15-year mortgage. I have never found a situation where someone comes to me um, and it's not on the sheet that took out a 15-year mortgage two, three, four, five years ago and looks at the rate and says, I could get a point lower. And you do the math, it's you, you almost have to disregard what the interest rate is and just focus on, look how much principal paydown is occurring every month and how fast you're getting to a zero mortgage balance. It never, I have never seen a situation where it made sense to refinance uh, another 15 year mortgage. I always say it's the last loan you'll ever have. Ignore the rate, just ignore what the rate is and look at your statement every month. And there is no way um, you should let, ever refinance a 15 let, year. Let me share an analogy. Many, I, I have never used cocaine. In my life, I don't understand it, but many people do, and I can't figure out why. I, I mean, people go to great extremes, and the analogy is this, that the only thing I'm concerned about, see, Peter, I've checked with my rental houses. They don't know if there's a loan on them or not. They sure. are blissfully unaware. So this is just a financial tool to me. Yeah. And if I have a 30 and wish to make it a 15 or a 10 or a nine, I will calculate that. And I'll, if I can't calculate it, I'll call my friend Peter Burke, who will help me calculate it. And then I'll decide I'm in charge of my finances because I'm disciplined. And you yeah. don't believe that because you don't honor me as an American. <laughs> and part two of that 15 year, and um, this goes back a number of years ago where um, an affluent real estate investor switched everything to a 15 year mortgage on his rental properties. And I believe about 18 months later fell into a situation where his income had declined and he was now suffering the forced indignity of making that 15-year payment. So I do tell people, if you own an investment property, follow that advice. Make it a 15 when your income is good, but 
keep it at a 30 in, when times are tough. Well, a sage advice from our uh, illegal alien friend, Peter Burke. Wait a minute. Um, we're not allowed to use that anymore. Did you know that? Correct. Uh, non says no. I'm kidding. Peter is a great American and a great coffee drinking friend, and we appreciate his being here. I'm going Thanks, to share the screen one more time here. Well, we've got to move on because it's time for intermission here. But um, let's see. I'm going to go right here. There we go. And there's the number. OSU for Ohio State University. J the Buckeyes. Yeah, the Buckeyes. That's where Peter went. JLR for John Loves Rent, which I do, and whiskey, which is what we drink after closings. So um, there's the number, 678-557-9759. Those of you who have not refinanced or you've been thinking about it, or those of you who have been listening mistakenly to Dave Ramsey and his kindergarten school of finance, need to pick up the phone and call Peter and validate your decision. That's my advice. Peter, uh, are you uh, um, available today? You are welcome to call or text me. That's fantastic. All right, we appreciate it. And I'm going to bid you adieu. Meanwhile- See you next week, everybody. Meanwhile, it's time for us to take an intermission. All right. If you would like to talk on the program, all you have to do is say, I'd like put in Q and a, I'd like to talk with John. And then Margie will, will elevate you. We would have to see Peter has been elevated. Okay. And she will tell you what to do, but uh, we don't have to have your picture. It's just going to be like the old radio show. We'll hear your voice and you and I will have a chance to talk, which I would love to have happen. So we're going to take a short break right now. This is time for our intermission and we will be right back. Don't touch that dial. All right, watch this. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you got a fresh cup of coffee. Whoops. Stop, stop. Here. And uh, it's time for us to um, go to slide 102. 102. Enter. Wow. And um, uh, I am looking for Ian Robbins, and I'm hoping he's... All right, Margie's going to get Ian. One of the things I want to share with you folks is that we have seen in the last 12 months a substantial migration from the dense inner cities, which would be sort of like inside 285, to more rural, um, not just suburbs, but exurbs. And I've got some commentary that people have posted on that that I want you to see here. But 
uh, here you've got a moving truck in New York City. And I've been to New York City many times. Margie and I always enjoy visiting Manhattan because it's the center of the known universe. I mean, it's great. But I don't think I'd want to live there, especially now when all the restaurants are closed, although I think they just opened them. And, and Governor Cuomo is killing all the seniors. Um, that was never mind. Um, but these people are moving and they're getting the heck out and there are other places to live, especially, well, let's just see what the slides say. This article was called People Seeking Lifestyle and Country Real Estate Soars in Unprecedented Year. And the exurbs are beyond the suburbs. The suburbs typically are within an easy commute. And so I would say Marietta is a suburb. Decatur is a suburb. Um, um, even most of Gwinnett is a suburb. Um, but once you get out I-20, once you get out 85, more than, you know, 20, 30 miles outside the perimeter. I know there are people that do that commute every day, but at that point for a lot less money, you can get a lot more house and more land if that's what you want. And it's a different lifestyle. So what are we seeing here? And by the way, if you wanna talk with me about this, I'd love your thoughts please go into Q&A and just type Margie. I'd like to talk with John and she'll take care of it. Okay. She'll tell you what to do. So the 2020 market for exurban and rural homes exploded in the last 12 months. Areas of farmland, ranches, land, country homes, and hunting land uh, are what people are looking for. They want to get out of the big city. And I think the implications of this migration are very important. Um, do we have Ian with us? Yes, John, yes, I am here. Ah, good. Well, Ian, it's so good to see you today. We have had a Zam Bang program, uh, and there's more to come. Wait till you hear what attorney John, an accountant John Heyer has to say. But I'd like your thoughts on this city to, it's not just the suburbs, it's almost what I would say is out in the country. Um, that type of migration. Have you seen this in your, uh, well, I know you have one foot in the moving business and one foot in the real estate world. It, in any of your, any of the hats that you're wearing, have you noticed this type of migration, or is this just something somebody's wanting to talk about? I have noticed that migration, John. I think younger people like to be in the city. It's got a lot of amenities. I think as people grow up, uh, they people want more value for the real estate. And nowadays, uh, they get to have a little elbow room, if you will. Well, and that's one of the, the features. Um, but in addition to that, um, 
there's more. Um, and I'm going to bring up this, this screen so we can talk about it briefly. Um, I think people are, or what they say is that Redfin did a big study of this. And what they claim is people are looking for a peaceful spot where they can spread out just a little bit. Um, we have seen in the last two years a remarkable political and societal change. And I think some people are concerned about that. You know, images of downtown American cities burning uh, is disconcerting. And I don't mind telling you, what was that? Was that an Arby's in Atlanta that they burned to the ground for no particular reason? It was a Wendy's. A and Wendy's. It was a very sad night. It, we was a sad, it was a sad night. And, but that was only about, I think, seven or eight miles from my house. And I thought, if these people can do this, whenever they want without police intervention and nobody's going to stop them because they're a mob, they could do it at my house and they could do it anywhere. And there are plenty of places in the United States where that just is extremely unlikely to happen, but it sure happened in Atlanta. It happened in Minneapolis. It happened in Portland. It happened in Seattle's. And these are all great cities um, in in America, and it's it's a concern. It is a concern, John. But there's another trend that I'm seeing, and I know your question is about going out to the suburbs, but there is a trend that that example would be Avalon, or where the Braves play, um, at, at that area. Um, you can live there. You could work there and you could shop there. So in a quarter mile, let's call it a half a mile area, you can do everything you need and, and not have to leave that, that, that location, that vicinity, if you will. You know, you're right. Um, I think the idea of a city center being the heartbeat of an area I mean, it may be the heartbeat, but it is much less a powerful factor than it was 10 years ago. And, and, you know, up north in Atlanta, we've seen this explosion of technology campuses and people who want to live halfway up in North Georgia. They don't mind commuting to Johns Creek, but that's as far as they want to go. That's a long drive. They do it. it. It is a long drive, and uh, I don't know if you heard the first hour. I was talking with John Schaub, and he was talking about Sarasota. He said, I'm two minutes from shopping, two minutes from church. I'm two minutes from everything. I said, yeah, that's sort of like Atlanta. I'm two hours from shopping, two hours <laughs> from church. Two hours. I'm two hours from everything. So, anyway. but, you know but you know what, John? You said something probably more than five years ago that still sticks with me and that one day Chattanooga will be part of the Atlanta metropolitan area. And you even gave an analogy of Gatwick airport in uh, London. And you went into detail about the, the train that you took and I see that migration. So I guess it's as clear as mud. There's all different types of uh, people and different needs. 
That's true. I love that. It is as clear as mud. Um, I, and I'm going to make a prediction right now. And the reason I'm saying this is I was born and raised in Atlanta. I remember when I was a child, my dad threw us all in the back of a, of a car on Sunday afternoon. It did not have air conditioning and drove us down to what was the name of the, the Darlington apartments on Peachtree across from Piedmont hospital. And they had this sign up there that said population of Atlanta. And when it turned 1 million, I mean, that was a source of pride for all of us in the metro area. And of course, now we're at six and a half, depending on who you believe, six and a half to seven million. But we now say the 26 county metro area, which takes, I mean, we're taking in a lot of, of space there. Um, and my point is that when I was a kid growing up in Decatur, if we went to Gainesville, that was a long trip. Oh yeah, you were going out to the to the the country. Yeah, we were going out to the country, man, and you would go for miles and miles and see nothing. And uh, I I also remember going to uh, Lake Alatoona. I was in the Boy Scouts, and my Boy Scout troop had a um, a, a parcel of land up there and some cabins and so forth. And we would do a week long camp every summer. And I remember driving, not me driving, but my folks or somebody's folks driving me from Decatur, which is where the scout troop was to Ackworth, Georgia, which I had never heard of, but it was like a day long trip to get there. It was a different world. And guess what? Today, Gainesville is just part of the 404 overlay. Um, uh, Ackworth, I think, is part of the 404, 678 overlay, whatever those things are called. And the, we, it's all just part of Metro Atlanta. And I predict the same thing is going to happen with Athens. And Athens is fighting right now to maintain its independence but it's on a losing battle. Really? I, I think. And the one thing they've got going for them is UGA, but I think that's also their Achilles heel because you got all this land between, say, Lawrenceville and Athens city limits. And it's cheap. And if you've ever driven some of that, and I have, there's a ton of pipe farms where developers started little subdivisions in 2006, 2007, and then got caught with their pants down and had, they were all foreclosed, but somebody owns those and somebody's going to go in there and people will buy those homes. And it's going to oh, yeah. be interesting to see what happens. So like you said, uh, that'll be the quote of the day. It's clear as mud. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you I have like, the other, you have I the like other. that. Well, let's go, let's go back and, and look at some of these real quick and then we'll move on. Um, I said here, explosion in health opportunities. What I meant was we are seeing health employment 
go through the roof. And you've got places like um, uh, Gwinnett Medical Center, which 20 years ago was very small and now is expanding like nobody's business. And so people can live in Bogart, Georgia, which is not, I mean, they, they don't even have a stoplight in Bogart. You want to buy an acre with a house on it, it costs $12, I think, last time I checked. Um, uh, but you can commute very easily to the Gwinnett Medical Center in Lawrenceville, and they're actually spreading in that direction. So um, health care opportunities, I think, are, are exploding. And you and I, Ian, right now are on a platform that allows millions of people to work from home. Um, <clears throat> this is Zoom. There's so many like this out there. And I think originally, the Zoom was developed, as I understand it, primarily to allow an office meeting that everybody could attend. But it was assumed you would join from the office and you might have an office, you know, in another city or something. And, and this was not designed to replace offices. But what we're seeing today, I think I mentioned this last week, I talked with a corporate headhunter recently who had been hired by somebody like Equifax, but it wasn't Equifax, but they're looking for an accountant. And guess what? It doesn't matter where that person is located as long as they have reliable internet. That's terrific. And, and, and the employer has already made that clear. And the headhunter said, this opens up vast, a vast pool of uh, prospects, <clears throat> and I'm suggesting that this this work from home business um, is is just going to continue to drive an exodus from real high priced real estate. And I understand that um, you know some there's a reason that Buckhead costs more than Hey Hira. I understand. I get that. Okay, uh, but there's something to be said for Hey Hira too. Now I will not extend that to Dublin because <laughs> Dublin is the armpit of America. And I hope I'm not um, alienating any of our viewers or listeners, Ian, who may hail from Dublin, but I, there's just nothing there. And if you've ever been there, it's, well, there's just nothing there. So, so much for that. Um, and this is the, the final key here. And let me bring this screen up because I think this is really the bottom line. And this will have profound impacts on real estate for quite some time. Studies have shown that work from home employees, where it has been embraced by management, the workers are happier and they are more productive. And I think for years, Ian, the presumption was that, well, if you let people work from home, they're not going to do anything. They'll just sit around with their kids all day or their dog or, or whatever. And that just has not turned out to be the case. And there are ways to uh, measure a person's productivity that we didn't have years ago. And there are ways to 
uh, monitor a person's activities that we didn't have years and years ago. And Absolutely. And John, all of these trends that you're referring to, I live in my moving business. So I've had many of my clients say to me, I'm moving to be back close to the family because my employer has now recognized that I don't have to be in this town. And I do have a reliable internet connection or an airport. They do mention that from time to time. But I even got a call last week from a client who said, we're moving back to Atlanta. We're taking our uh, good Northeast um, salary. And now we're coming back to Atlanta. Can you move us back? And that was kind of smart. I'm, so, I am wondering, and that's a very interesting um, uh, report from the field, if you will. Um, I am just wondering if this is going to have an impact on disparate salaries, because you're exactly right. Uh, New England jobs have a tendency to pay more because they have a higher cost of living. This is one of my primary objections to a $15 minimum wage. I think that's probably appropriate on Manhattan where a Coke costs $7, but you well, can get a, you can get a Coke in Atlanta for a, a buck and a half somewhere. And, and it's just a entirely different cost of living. So it'll be interesting to watch and report. And that's what you and I are here for, right? That's correct. All right. I've put on the screen here, some uh, legitimate work from home careers that, a number of years ago, I think many employers would simply have said, no, we need you to be here. We can't, you won't be able to contribute unless you are here. And things like graphic design, things like bookkeeping. I'll give you a good example on bookkeeping. Are you ready? Yep. There is a huge number of qualified CPAs who are now based in Australia and India, and Absolutely. they they do the work overnight while we're all sleeping in this country. Work while make money while you sleep. They, exactly, they <laughs> exactly. And not only that, um, the, they say the quality of the work is great. And of course, we know that wages in India and wages. I don't. I'm not familiar with Australia, but I'm guessing wages in India are substantially below what they are in the United States. So we're on the verge, I think, of a globalization. And I think that's going to affect real estate as well. So real quickly, let's finish up this segment and move on because we've got a lot to talk about. Will the trend continue? Redfin, listen to this, Ian. Redfin reported that the housing supply in rural America dropped 44% in 2020. Wow. And that helped to drive the overall shortage of homes for sale nationwide. Somebody's buying those houses. Absolutely. And then people want peace. This was a direct quote from a, a broker out in Podunk, Georgia, somewhere. People want peace and to be able to have chickens or a couple cows and sit out on their deck overlooking a lake and drink coffee. Okay, now, John, uh, my wife is not going to go with the chickens and the cows. Um, that's, good. that's not going to work. 
Well, so, you, you say that, Ian, and yet I actually have here a photograph of you and your wife. <laughs> um, once you've moved out into the country, you could have you those chickens. You know what? It's funny, John. One of my rental properties had chickens in it. And this guy, he loved his chickens. And the the, the county let him have them. And it was it was cool. It was out in the backyard. Did did the chickens poop in your house? They you know that they did not, and and we got fresh eggs. So it it was great. Hey, fresh eggs, good. I saw some, I mean, this is we're off the subject now. But these um, free-range chickens, I assume you would call these free-range here, um, they, the eggs they lay are like $5 each. It's unbelievable. Good eggs. Yep. So anyway, well, let's, let's uh, real quick go back and look at this final slide. Whoops, I went in the wrong direction. Come on now. All right, so the last thing I wanted to mention to people as we're thinking about this topic is, and this was brought up in this Redfin study, it turns out that a country lifestyle can reduce stress levels by double digits. The risk for anxiety is 21% lower and mood disorders. I think when they say that, Ian, they mean like the people that at the post office, that when you are unpleasant to them, they go get a high power rifle and start shooting. That would be a mood disorder. They're 39% lower in rural areas compared, compared to their urban counterparts. And studies have shown that ridding one's environment or oneself of pollution, traffic, noise, congestion, and other stressors found in the city can actually reduce depression. And Ian, I've sort of noticed you have been just a little depressed recently. I'm doing pretty good, but oh, maybe I move out to the to the to the to out where the chickens are, and I could see more stars tonight or something. I don't I, know. I listen. I as a Boy Scout, I uh, uh, and this was like 1896. I took a trip to Philmont Scout Ranch in in New Mexico. Uh, in the foothills of the Rockies. And buddy, it is so far from a light source that I had never seen. Of course, I grew up in Atlanta, but I had never seen a night sky like that in my life. So Incredible. I wish for everyone that once in your life, you get a chance to, you know, I always thought on a cruise ship, I'd be able to, there's so many lights on a cruise ship. It's like yep. a, it's like a baseball stadium. I mean, it's, you can't see anything. So anyway, all right, so much for that. Um, we are now going to visit with our friend, John Heyer. This takes about 11 minutes, but boys and girls, Ian and I want you to pay attention to this. Let me go to the slide. Um, John is a very interesting person. He is a combination um, accountant and attorney. And he works with people who are trying to resolve difficult issues with the IRS. And he is an expert on planning uh, using retirement entities for real estate investors. 
And so I'm going to go right now to slide number 100. First, I have to click here. There, there's Ian and his wife again, 100. And I want to begin by reminding everyone, and Margie mentioned this earlier, but this is a quote in federal court from federal judge Learned Hand. And no, I'm not making that up. This was from 19, he had two quotes. One was from 1934 and the other 1947 that essentially said the same thing. But here's what he said over and over again. Courts have said that there is nothing sinister in so arranging one's affairs as to keep taxes as low as possible. Everybody does so, rich or poor, and all do right. For nobody owes any public duty to pay more than the law demands. Taxes are enforced extractions, not voluntary contributions. To demand more in the name of morals is mere can't. And can't is just another word for babbling. So um, I, I keep coming, Ian, back to taxes are enforced extractions, which reminds me of when I had my wisdom teeth out. That was right. forced extractions. It was extremely painful. So that's how I approach taxation. But anyway, let's see what, uh, what John Heyer has to say. Folks, we'll be back in just a few minutes. If during this presentation you have a question, please type it into Q&A, and Ian and I and Margie will try to cover it. Here we go. And we are back. John Adams here on the Real Estate Coffee Break with our very special guest, John Heyer, who is an attorney, he's an accountant, and he is a master at helping us so arrange our affairs as to not pay a single penny more than the law demands. I, uh, John, welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you here. Obviously, you heard uh, my incorporation of the famous quote from Judge Learned Hand, which I have on the wall here. That's, that's number one on the, I mean, if, if your tax person doesn't live that quote, you got the wrong tax person. Well, that's one of the reasons Margie and I have sought you out, um, because I think you have the right attitude. You know, I don't mind paying my fair share. I just don't want to pay more than my fair share. I, I think we all, you know, we want the, the country to do well. We, certainly, these are difficult times. But uh, nonetheless, we shouldn't have to pay more than the, the minimum that the law demands. And you've got a conference coming up. Um, uh, it's Saturday now. You're going to be in Atlanta on the 27th and, yeah, we've and, today. Tw and 28th. Uh, tell us a little about that conference. What's going on? How can people find out more about it? All right. Uh, to find out more, I would go to taxreductionclass.com. It's one of three classes on there right now that we're presenting taxreductionclass.com. This one focuses heavily on an area that I highly specialize in, self-directed IRAs, self-directed 401ks, self-directed defined benefit plans that you can contribute three, $400,000 a year to while taking a deduction. Um, of course, HSAs, Coverdales. I have actually, unlike most people, been the tax court 
on self-directed IRA issues. So I've been up close and personal with the IRS on these issues. I have a pretty good sense of what they go after. I have been to the tax court building in DC. Get how old fashioned and archaic they are. When you see a decision on a case, the one that you just read what the judge said, that's the tippy tippy pointy end of the spear. The whole rest of the thing you're not seeing for a typical case is about a shopping cart full of depositions, cross-examination, and here's what I really like, opposing counsel briefs. I wanna see what the IRS lawyers who litigate IRAs, I wanna see all the arguments they're making that never show up in the case. But the only way to get that, because the tax court is still a little behind, so to get that, you have to go to this tiny room in Washington, D.C. that has two old-fashioned computer monitors, and they wheel out the shopping cart full of paper uh, and you go through it. And sometimes stuff's missing. I had one, it was a checkbook LLC case and somebody must've been embarrassed because the operating agreement for the checkbook LLC was missing. And given the result in that case, I can see why someone didn't want it being seen, but still it's kind of like, that's some guts, you know, to walk in a place like that. I mean, it's like Sandy Berger, the old Clinton guy, you know, <laughs> stuffing federal records down his trousers. But, but we're gonna cover prohibited transactions in great detail. Um, a lot of people think they understand them. Let me give you an example. If I shake your hand, I can blow up your IRA. It's like, so I can give you COVID at the same time. Um, <laughs> but if I shake your hand and you and I make a deal, let's say we make a deal where I, I put out content and you produce the content and we split the profits half and half. And because we're gentlemen of an older school, yep. we shake hands and our word's good. That's right. Well, that's an entity under tax law. It's a partnership. Okay. A partnership on 50% or more by a disqualified person is disqualified. So let's think about my IRA. I'm disqualified as to my IRA. Right. Our handshake entity is now disqualified because 50% owned by a disqualified person. Right. And you're disqualified because one of the rules is anyone who owns 10% or more of a disqualified entity is disqualified. Right. So my shaking hands with you on a JV 50-50 disqualifies you. And if my IRA makes a loan to you, that's boom. the end. Yeah. So you know, I, think, I think there's a wide misunderstanding of disqualified persons and disqualified entities. And this is so important because um, Marge and I have a solo 401k that has really done some remarkable things, but we've had to be very careful to not um, uh, violate that disqualified person rule. Um, what are the, just in a nutshell, if you make a mistake, do a handshake and, and accidentally loan some money to a disqualified person, what, what are the consequences if, if the IRS wants to know about it? All right. If they catch it, 401ks are superior. And I'm going to spend some time talking about that at the conference. And we're going to get into checkbook LLCs, UBIT, what we've seen in audits, the whole nine yards. But one of the first messages I'll make, and it's not an either or decision. I think you should have a 401k and an IRA. I would just put my money in the 401k first because it's a better plan. One of the reasons it's a better plan, if I have a million dollar IRA and I lend my mother a dollar, which is obviously a prohibited transaction. Sure. That's gonna cost me somewhere between four and six hundred thousand dollars. And sure. whatever's, whatever's left yeah. comes out and is no longer tax sheltered. 
Now in the 401k, here's the penalty though. So that's an IRA. Yeah. 401k, the penalty is 15 cents a year until we correct the prohibited transaction and get that dollar back from mom. Now that's a bit of a difference. Sure it is. Sure. So one of the reasons we like 401ks is they're more forgiving. And a lot of people think they don't qualify for their own 401k. Let me give you an example. And you tell me when I ramble too much because I'm a lawyer and that's what we do. We're good. good. I had two clients over in California pulling five, six hundred thousand dollars each. They're married on a W-2 that had, oh, I don't know. There's several million in a traditional IRA. And they wanted the safety of a 401k. And I said, well, you got to have a small business. And they're like, well, we don't we don't have time for a small business. We work crazy hours to earn those massive W-2s. Sure. And I said, sure, you have time. Let me ask you a question. You got a bunch of junk in the garage you could sell on eBay? And the husband said no. And the wife said yes. And then the husband <laughs> looks at her and goes, yes. <laughs> and I said, all right, if you sell, let's just make an arbitrary number. If you sell 2000 bucks a year worth of that junk on eBay, that is a Schedule C trader business. Don't take any deductions. I want it to show two grand of income. So even if you think you've got deductions like car mileage or whatever, don't, don't take them. Yeah. I want two grand, no entity. Let's not even bother with an LLC. Just report it on your Schedule C and I want you to sell roughly, not you know, a round number looks dumb. So it's gotta be roughly two grand, like $2,138.42 or exactly. whatever. Um, a year of stuff and track it so you can prove it. You know, here it is where I sold it on Craigslist or eBay or whatever. Here's the deposit into the bank account. That is enough to fund a 401k, in their case, a solo K. Now you're not funding it by a lot. How much can they put in it per year? You know, a grand each. Yeah. But what does it allow them to do? Roll their traditional IRAs into the 401k and operate in a much safer, more flexible environment. Very interesting. Listen, we have, we're coming up on a hard break here, but um, folks can go to taxreductionclass.com and you've got three events and there's another one coming up in Atlanta soon. In uh, when, March or April? March 20th and 21st, Saturday and Sunday, the 20th and 21st, all about entities. And it's not a Nevada sales fest. And we're going to talk about why the people out of Nevada and Utah are evil when it comes to asset protection and taxes and why you should not listen to them and what some better alternatives are. We're also going to get into maintaining the entities and some exotic entities, as well as we'll give out a few operating agreement samples for you to use. Uh, and last but not least, you know, we were just laughing that I got semi canceled on Facebook this Tuesday and we're recording it. We're going to sell the recordings, but we're doing well on Facebook. I can't call it this the Biden tax increases. I was calling it the Biden pregame and what they're looking to do and what's going to be retroactive and what not and what do we think is going to pass and what do we think won't and most of all, what to do about it. Real quick question, what what do you think is going to happen with 1031s? I think they're going to stay. They've been talking for decades and it's the same kind of people. Now, granted, these people are further to the left and more nuts, which I'm not allowed to say on Facebook or they'll cancel my advertisements. And they did, by the way, it's just no joke. Um, some wokester reported me and they canceled it. So we have to rephrase it. I think Biden that's a, John, I, I, I would consider that a badge of honor. A recommendation. Yeah. Um, I think they'll stay with the caveat. These people are further left and more nuts than anybody before. So who knows? But they've been talking about getting rid of 1031 since Roosevelt's time. 
Yeah. And it hasn't happened. Well, we appreciate Mr. Starker and everything he's done for us. Um, I want people to go to taxreductionclass.com. We look forward to the events you've got coming up, whether it's the new tax plan, what to expect, what's happening, or whether it's about these very powerful retirement entities that so many people ignore that really can make a huge difference in our retirement. And that's sort of what we're looking at. And I, I admit I've been in this a long time. We've been very fortunate, but I'm wanting to sort of transition from toilets, tenants, and tools and start moving a little bit toward uh, maybe uh, uh, moving to Puerto Rico. How about that? Come on down. The tax breaks are wonderful. The weather is very nice. All right. Well, I sure look forward to seeing you in Atlanta next week. Um, and, and is that going to be streamed? It's we not. are recording it. We're streaming it and it's live. All right. Fantastic. So. Fantastic. And we can find out all about that at tax reduction class com. John Heyer, accountant and attorney, a, a, a double threat <laughs> right here on the coffee break. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. All right. Very interesting. This John Heyer is a, I, I think, Ian, I think he immerses himself in this, uh, um, whole topic of how to not necessarily beat the IRS, but wait, wait there, uh, but how to so arrange your affairs as to not pay a penny more than the minimum the law demands. Does that sound fair to you? Absolutely. And that guy was sharp, John. Thank you for having him on the program. You'd want that guy on your team. I mean, this what he he knew a lot of details about a he lot did. of different ways. He did, so. and you know, I, um, my wife is a CPA. I sleep with my accountant. Okay, but um, in order to be that cutting edge, you have got to spend a tremendous amount of time just keeping up to date. And Margie will be the first person to tell you that. You know, she retired from public practice a few years ago. Yes, she has kept up with some of the real estate stuff. But in terms of these retirement entities, there there is so much to know. And uh, that's why I'm going to be attending the John Heyer event, uh, probably over Zoom. But uh, I do recommend it to anybody that, uh, by the way, Dykes Botterford is the one, uh, our friend Dykes, um, is the one who first recommended that I uh, meet and talk with John Heyer, and I'm really glad that he did. So, Dyke Spotterford, thank you, sir, for, for that. Okay, um, it is time now for us to... Do, 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 do. Now, now, John, can you imagine if Dykes and John were having coffee together and the, the level of conversations they would have? That, that would be fun. <laughs> I, it would, it's already giving me a headache just thinking about it. <laughs> but I, I think for our listeners, John, I think we need to keep our receipts. I think we need to um, make sure we write down in whatever fashion we have in terms of what we are spending for our rentals, 
um, making sure they're legitimate expenses. And, and they are, if you're repairing something, that's good. And then make sure you have a qualified person to uh, do your books and, and, and do your taxes. Well, so if- and yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And one of the things I've asked Margie to do for this program and for our friends is to share with people just some of the basics. Like I heard Margie talking the other day about how important it was to have a 60-day representative sample of a driving log and that the IRS will accept a 60-day, oh, 90-day. See, that's why I keep her around. You have to have a 90-day representative sample of where you kept a record. And of course, there's lots of um, uh, apps that you can put on your iPhone or your smartphone that will help you keep up with it. But the point is, if you've got 90 days uh, and you get a letter from the IRS and they say, well, um, we would like to ask you to, to document, what documentation, please, do you have for this um, deduction for mileage? And you've already got it. Yep. And, and it's because somebody said, this will solve that problem. Whereas if you don't have it, they're going to want to see everything at that point. And it just gets worse quickly. So I just would encourage, and I don't want this to become an accounting uh, uh, program. I mean, we're, we're here as real estate investors, but um, at the same time, we need to be aware that part of the playing field here, if you will, is taxes. And it's, I believe, the greatest expenditure that the average person will have in their lifetime is taxes. So it just makes sense to do common sense things. And John Heyer is, is, and John Mangum are the type of people who um, help us with that. And it's well, a language I do not speak, Ian Robbins. <laughs> but you know what, John, you've taught some basic things that I just want to remind our listeners. The first one is that let's say you have a W-2 income and you have a, um, a business income and you're going to pay a certain amount of taxes. Let's say it's a hundred dollars and let's say you're at a 30% tax bracket. So you're going to pay 30% on that hundred dollars. But if you have your business business income and you can show that you paid for materials at home Depot and you paid for a laborer that did the repair. Now you have a profit at maybe $20. Now you're paying 30% on $20 and you're paying $6 instead of $30. Basic stuff, but thank you, John, for teaching that many years ago. And I get that because even the IRS would appreciate because Home Depot made money and they're paying taxes, the laborers paying money and they're paying taxes. And therefore you've done everything correctly and you've structured your affairs correctly. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because the I believe the descriptive word for the what happens when one person spends money and another person gets money as a result, another person gets money as a result. Uh, I think they call it the multiplier effect. By the way, this is a dog nose, in case you're wondering. Tito wanted to be reassured that he was not going to be taxed on his on his uh, dog food, doggy <laughs> treats here. 
He wants a doggy <laughs> treat, I think. But anyway, uh, you know, they don't teach this stuff in the schools. And I'll be honest, I have been, hello. I have been in plenty of seminars where an accountant gets up and starts talking to a room of 200 people and you just watch the eyes glaze over. And, you know, it's hard to make it understandable because it's written by experts for experts. And I don't think the, I mean, I'm not blaming the IRS, it's Congress that writes it, but you'd think they could write the law as if they had some purpose in mind. Right. <laughs> it just seems to be all willy nilly. And of course they change the rules of the game um, on a regular basis. So we'll see. But that's a good thing because you know what, John, if they change the rules of the game and you stay on top of it, then that's okay. And, and, and there's some people that don't stay on top of it. I have a question for you, John, that sure. I think your listeners, this is on the edge here, but it was good advice that you gave many years ago. You talked about audits. I got audited 20 years ago, and you had said something to the effect of the IRS has certain quota for audits. So if you wait to file your taxes, then you have less chance of getting audited. Do you, I will tell you that has worked for me. The one caveat to everybody listening is you still have to pay your taxes. Oh, yeah. Don't don't that Ian didn't say don't pay your taxes till later. Ian, you certainly have to pay your taxes, but do you believe that concept of waiting until the audit buckets are full? I do, uh, and and that has been uh, that information came from former IRS employees who confirmed that. Um, the IRS hires temporary workers in, um, uh, in April to handle the huge flow of, of uh, returns that are coming in at that time, because most people are just going to go ahead and file um, because they want to get their money as quickly as possible. And that's a powerful motivation, but this, these same sources have indicated that as the year goes by, the IRS is constantly complaining that they don't have enough money for personnel. They would like a lot more money for personnel. And of course, I mean, I think they could have an unlimited desire for money for personnel. And so what happens is when their budget um, starts to, to get tight, which is usually in about August, uh, they let these seasonal workers go and they have a habit of doing this on a regular basis. At the same time, they every year have a, a quota of about how many audits do we want to perform. They can only do so many. Um, and it's a wonderful thing that they can't get to every, every, you know, a, a detailed examination of everybody's return. Um, praise the Lord. But the point here is that as the year goes by and as those quotas are met and as the seasonal workers decline, um, there is a less, a lower and lower likelihood that your return is going to be uh, investigated on a casual basis. Certainly, if you've got red flags, 
certainly if you're doing something that the computer's going to kick out, uh, you can expect to hear from somebody. But the reality is that uh, by waiting, you theoretically um, lower the likelihood that you're going to be picked for a random um, audit of some sort, and that suits me just fine. And so interestingly, um, the IRS now um, automatically grants an extension on April 15th. You still have to file a form, but you don't have to give them any reason. And that's good for, I think, 90 days. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. But then all you have to do is request an additional extension and you get, I think, on into September. So, and that October 15th, a little voice just popped in from somewhere else. And that has been my experience. And I want to thank you because since then I have not been audited. I'm not sure why I have a good CPA. Who, by the way, I've never met, but I've done everything even before COVID, before all this, and just done a fabulous job. Lives in Bogart, Georgia. And um, as long as I keep my receipts and do what she wants, she's, she'll be okay. We'll be all right. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, let's jump over here. And uh, that's not what I want. Let's go back. I'm going to share our screen. Bingo and bingo. That's still not what I want. And so I'm going to go to 116, enter. That didn't work. 116, enter. That worked. No. Oh, I know what happened. Okay, we've got questions here, I think. I apologize, folks. I'm just got confused here. Uh, we'll save this for next week. I just wanted to report, Ian, you and I have talked about it. Realtor.com, which is not owned by the National Association of Realtors, although it is uh, under a contractual arrangement with uh, the NAR. Realtor.com website has acquired avail.com co and um i think what this means is it indicates that realtor.com intends to be a player in the rental market space and this is a perfect answer to zillow which is now charging ten dollars a week for rental ads and um you know, for the longest time, it was free. And I used to teach, go to Zillow, use Postlets. Well, they acquired Postlets. They acquired just about everybody else in the space. And now they think they have no competition. Avail received a really premium price um, for, um, for the acquisition. But it, I believe, is going to do a great thing for realtor.com and i think it indicates uh they're going to be in the business of rentals for decades to come so that's not what i'm looking for there we go so um let's see if we've got any member questions here and and that will uh get us here we go 
We've got just a few questions, Ian, and I'm going to throw them out here. Um, Bill Douglas. Hi, Bill. He says he missed last week. We were on vacation. Good for you. I hope you had a great time. Stayed safe. Um, what is the rationale for removing the rent escalation clause from the killer lease? Some of the attorneys that consult with me and the, the committee that uh, maintains the killer lease came to the conclusion that it was unenforceable or it might be unenforceable. Um, I have always said all along that there certainly are some judges who would say it was unenforceable. It does not appear to be consistent with common law. And um, so for that reason, in order to lend a greater air of legitimacy to the killer lease, there was a consensus that we could remove that. Bill, you have my blessing and permission to reinsert it if you wish to do so. But it, what it says is basically at any time, um, I can uh, raise the rent to anything I want. And the problem with that is that basically it, um, it violates the whole idea of an agreement for providing a service at a set expense. Okay. So in other words, if we say the rent is this and then it becomes that, you have what's called variable consideration. And I'm not sure that it's a good idea uh, to have that blatantly in the lease. Although if you want to, you have my permission. Um, Kathy, how, where or how is the best way to find legitimate mortgage companies in person or online? Is online risky? Kathy, I will share with you my personal experience. And then I'm going to ask Ian what his experience is. Um, the online mortgage industry has changed dramatically just in the last few years and improved, I think, dramatically in the last few years. I attempted years ago, now this was like 2000. 10 or something like that to refinance a property that I had a mortgage on uh, with the company and they had this online refinance division. They'd promised me a lot of stuff and let me tell you, they were the most incompetent people. I think it was something like old dominion mortgage, somebody I'd never heard of before, but they, this was before technology allowed a platform like Ian and I are using right now to talk and uh, talk with you. And the big gorilla in the room obviously is Rocket Mortgage or Quicken. Um, and I will have to admit that they have apparently won the JD Power Award for uh, customer satisfaction. I think for like seven or eight years in a row. Um, 
on new mortgage originations. And you've got to look at that and say, gone." some of the people who use them really felt they got a good deal. I know that they are very um, flexible in terms of their products. When I was talking with Peter Burke earlier, I mentioned that there are some lenders that will let you refinance at an odd number of years. You want 23 years? Quicken Loans will give you 23 years. Uh, so if you just want to match that uh, remaining time period or you have a specific time period you want the mortgage to automatically amortize in, they will do that. Uh, that's just an example, but they're very, very good at what they do. And um, I can't speak to their rates. I prefer to do mortgage business with people that I know and trust. And that is why I use Peter Burke at Reliant. I've worked with Peter for well over 20 years. Margie and I are personal um, clients of his. And um, I, I just, I feel like he is able to shop and compare. Um, he is a, um, a mortgage banker, which a broker, I'm sorry, he is a mortgage broker, which means he can shop and compare among many, many different lenders. Whereas if you go to someplace like um, Bank of America, you're only going to be looking at Bank of America programs. So that's not necessarily bad, but I would assume also places like Quicken Loan are only going to offer the loans that Quicken has or Rocket Mortgage or whatever they call themselves. So Ian, what has been your experience with finding reputable lenders? Well, I so much agree with what you're saying, John, but I would add this for Kathy. You know, we don't know your situation there, Kathy, but I would say that when it comes to rental property, a lot of mortgage people don't know our business as much as they would understand a primary home. And so I have a lot of respect for Rocket and Quicken because they've done a great job in advertising. I've never used them, but I have no reason not to. I um, have been a, a client of Peter Burke and, and, and want to be in the future. And the truth is, I like the broker concept. And that's always very important because in the moving business, the broker concept is a real big problem, but not in the mortgage business. In the mortgage business, a guy like Peter is going to look at different uh, types of options and figure out what is available. But going back to rentals specifically, um, you know, my favorite story, and, and Peter was involved in this, is that, you know, when I buy my properties, I, I do uh, lay out some money up, up front. And then the term seasoning has come up. And I'll never forget, I was talking to a mortgage person that didn't know the word seasoning. He thought he was talking about vacation property. But seasoning in the mortgage business is a time that you own the property and then you could move it over to another type of product. And so I, th that was my experience to know you really have to have a specialist in what we are doing and that is for rentals. Well, I sage advice. So um, I, think, I think that handles it very well. Uh, Kathy, I'd call Peter and see what he has to offer. If you wanna shop and compare after that, you're certainly welcome to do that. Um, but I assure you, if, if you're involved in rentals, as Ian says, Peter's very comfortable 
working in that particular area. We have a question from Janet who says, I was advised by an asset protection attorney to put each of my rental properties into its own LLC. Seems like that's overkill. What are your thoughts? Let me dive in real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Ian, you, I'd like you to make a note that this is something we ought to talk about during our landlord hour in the future in more detail. Um, the, the idea of having a single LLC for each rental property is not only logical, but it's easy. And if you've got 10 properties and each one is in its separate LLC, then you have separated one asset that's in this LLC from the other nine. So even if somebody sues you, even if they pierce the corporate veil, even if they take everything, they get the property and and, and a judgment against you and all kind of other stuff, it doesn't attach to the other properties. They can't take those properties. That's the benefit. Now, when you get to, let's say you had 100 properties, and I don't, because I think that's crazy. I, Margie told me we had enough, so we've stopped. But um, if, let's say you've got 50 or 100 properties. Having 100 LLCs becomes cumbersome. And while you certainly could, um, at 100 properties, you're actually investing a fair amount every year in keeping those LLCs alive. And so, I mean, you got 100 of them. And so you, there's a lot of paperwork involved and and you got to keep up with all this stuff and so the idea that was that made sense to me was divide your real estate assets into piles roughly equivalent piles of equity okay not dollar amount but equity so if i own a house over here free and clear and it's worth $100,000, and I own an apartment complex over here, but it's borrowed um, $900,000 loan on a million-dollar property, those would be two separate lumps. And, and so it doesn't matter how many properties are in there. I'm just trying to separate into about 10. And the reason that I'm suggesting 10 is that that's relatively easy to keep up with. It recognizes that yes, you might have all of the assets inside that LLC at risk if they were able to pierce the corporate veil um, and if they could win a, a lawsuit. Um, and that, that has happened, and it's always a possibility. Nobody can guarantee you that their entity is absolutely impenetrable. So the idea is, well, if I have a million dollars in equity and I spread it out over 10 different LLCs, each one having $100,000, if I lose one, 
that I've lost a hundred grand, but I've still got nine. And that's a much better place to be than if I had um, uh, just one. Likewise, if I have $5 million in equity and end up with five properties in this one, one property in this one, 12 properties in this one, and roughly balance out 10 chunks, then if I lose one, I've still got 90% of what I had before. And that's the reasoning behind multiple LLCs. I know people, um, Janet, that have one LLC and a notebook, a three ring binder for every property they own. And that's their idea is that everyone should stand alone. And their perspective is that each LLC is a separate endeavor. And I see the logic in that. At the same time, I don't mind the ease of operation of having 10 baskets, each with about the same equity in it. And the other thing that we talk about, Janet, in our I've written a book called The Real Estate LLC in Georgia. And in that book, we talk about not only the use of the LLC um, to obfuscate the ownership of the property, but we also talk about how to, how to take your equity and mask it or to, to, to put that equity into something that makes it look not like equity. So for example, if somebody's, uh, somebody has a slip and fall, legitimate slip and fall on your property, um, they go to the hospital, they're stitched up, they spend some time at home and your insurance company takes care of them. You, that's what you pay insurance for, okay? But then they're watching, uh, what's his name? Ken Nugent on late night TV. And he says, get the money you're entitled to. One call, that's all, we got you a million dollars. Okay, this tenant is gonna go in to see Ken Nugent. Ken Nugent is gonna say, where did this happen? And the, the, uh, he's, your tenant's going to give them the address and they're going to say, who is the owner? And the tenant's going to say, I don't know. I, my landlord is, uh, my property manager is a guy named John Adams, but he, he says he's not the owner. He's the property manager. So Ken turns around to his computer and says, let me find out. He goes and it's the 233 Westchester Drive Trust. Okay. And unfortunately, um, there's no way to, for him to find out who is behind that trust, who is the beneficiary. There's just no way. And so he says, well, let's just see how much equity they have in the property because that will drive where we go from here. And it turns out that I own that property free and clear. And it's a $200,000 property. So I've got a $200,000 equity. But I took out a home equity line of credit from Ian Robbins Financial Services of America. And we signed all this paperwork. And I recorded the security deed. And it's 
in the face amount of $300,000. Ian, thank you very much. You're welcome. I know. Ian told me that he wasn't going to lend me a penny on that, but that he would assist me in putting this equity line of credit on there. And if he ever did get $300,000, he would consider loaning some to me. So now they go and do a credit, they go and do a title check. Guess what? The county says the house is worth 200,000. The loan is 300,000. Do you think Ken Nugent wants to get at that house? No, no, no. So we, we are, um, I hate to use the word hide, but we are obscuring equity because it's really none of the public's business, is it? It's my business. And if you own rental property as Ian does, it's only his business. And I just don't think it should be, e right now it's easy for someone to get on the computer and find out what the house is probably worth more or less and what you owe on it. Um, I'm all about making that more difficult, if not impossible. Ian? I, I thank you, John, for that explanation. I know we're running out of time, but Janet, I would only answer your question one more way. And that is how many properties, if you have just a few properties, your CPA's advice is good. Maybe start out with one, let's say you had three. John is correct. Um, you could put them in one, but if you want to do one each, that makes sense. That's great. Down the road, you might want to, if you have 10, 15, you might want to put, as John says, look at the equity in each and spread out the equity and maybe only have four or five of them. Um, so it depends on how many you have actually. But the whole LLC concept and the shield and the zapping of Ken Nugent and Ken Nugent would be very happy to say that that is correct. And he gets it because he gives a free consultation and his free consultation is exactly to check out if there's any money. If there's any money, he will find someone else to work with and then charge the client a lot of money and you win. <laughs> All right, right. And, and what Ken Nugent's going to say, I can tell you, these will be his exact words to the tenant who's trying to sue the upside down property. $300,000 mortgage balance, it's worth $200,000. And by the way, those things happen. That homes go down in value sometimes. So um, Ken's going to turn around and say, I'm glad you made that one call. That's all. I think you've got a great case. We'd like to take it and we need a $10,000 retainer. Why would he say that? He won't exactly. say that if there's plenty of equity. He'll say that because he doesn't think there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and he wants to make sure he gets paid, which I don't blame him. That's, that's fair. So Ian, we have got to run. Um, uh, GP has a couple of questions that we will get to next week, but GP, I would call Peter Burke. Um, GP's asking about uh, refinancing debt that you're carrying on credit cards. And I would call Peter Burke on that. Folks, I think if I can figure out how to do this, um, that's the 3-0 Mark IV. The, wait a minute. Yep, that's a 3-0 Mark IV, the John Adams Radio Show. And on behalf of Ian Robbins, I'm John Adams reminding you, your financial future 
is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. That's not the right music. Hold everything. We're going to get there. How embarrassing. We're going to get there. Hold everything. This, this is a real, this is a new low in exit. I can't find it. Margie's laughing in, in, the, other, in the other room. <laughs> your financial future is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. Make your choice a good one. So long, everybody. <laughs>